morning. My name is Carl Schultz. I serve as the associate pastor here. The year was 1980. I was a sophomore in college, and I was preparing to vote and respond to the election for the first time. Now, if you recall, the 1980 election was between Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. And perhaps it doesn't quite meet the same level uh, that today's campaign does. It certainly was one of concern for me. If you would have walked into my room at that time for that year, you would have seen three things on a bulletin board. You would have seen a photo, you would have seen a political cartoon, and you would have seen a bumper sticker. Now, the photo was not of Jean Kephart. She did not come into my life until the following year, but of Ronald Reagan. Now, before you label me as a young Republican, you have to look a little bit closer at that photograph. The photograph was not a campaign photo. It was not a photo of Governor Reagan, but it was the photo of Ronald Reagan, the actor. And to perhaps tell a little bit more about my view toward Ronald Reagan at that time, you have to see who else was in the photo. Sitting to the side of him was none other than the chimpanzee Bonzo. (laughs) It was a a movie still from the movie Bedtimes for Bonzo. Above that photograph on the bulletin board was a bumper sticker. A simple bumper sticker in white with black bold letters, two words that said, Impeach Reagan. The third was a political cartoon that depicted the Aitoli Khomeini wearing a a re-elect Carter button and said to his advisors, I don't care about either one of them, but frankly, Reagan scares me. So as a result... I did not vote for Ronald Reagan. I did not vote to re-elect Jimmy Carter. I voted instead for John Anderson, who was the independent candidate at that election. And so as I've looked at this election and, and some of the frustrations that we have experienced as Christians and as voters, Americans, I began to reflect a little bit back on that year 1980. And I really realized that I was wrong in what I did. Not because I voted for a candidate that only got 7% of the vote. Not because I failed to understand how great of a president and leader Ronald Reagan would be. But because I failed to have a different perspective, knowing that I had hope in Jesus Christ and I was swayed by the the Doonesbury cartoons and the uh, Saturday Night Live sketches to form my worldview and my view of the election. So this morning what I want to do is is I want to uh, spend a little bit of time trying to put the election in the context of a biblical worldview. And let me tell you first of all what I'm not going to do today. I'm not going to tell you at all who to vote for, whether you should vote at all. I'm not going to try to convince you that much like my experience with Ronald Reagan, that you will look back at President Trump or President Clinton with a whole new appreciation of how great a leader they were. 
But instead, what I want to do is I want to look at two things. I want to remind us of God's sovereignty, that it extends over all human institutions and governing authorities. And I want to offer some thoughts on perhaps how we can approach the next 30 days as we live on mission. Now, beyond my affinity for puns, the other reason I chose the sermon title, Divine Election, is because I believe that both the doctrine of election and this year's presidential election requires a strong view of God's sovereignty in order to put it into proper perspective. This morning for our main text, we'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at five verses. But before we do that, I want to provide some perhaps content and, and for some foundation that would have anchored Peter's position about how we respond to governing authorities. We'll look briefly at one passage from an Old Testament prophet, one from the Gospel of John, and one from Paul's letters to the Romans. First of all, from the Old Testament prophet Daniel. This is chapter 4, verse 17. That the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. And in the Gospel of John, this is again when Jesus was before Pilate under trial. Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. And finally, Romans 13, which is a very parallel passage to the one that we'll be looking in 1 Peter. This is Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and, thus, and those that exist have been instituted by God. It changes our perspective a little bit when we think about the election. It changes the perspective when we worry about who will be the next leader and lead this country. So now, if you haven't already done so, let's turn to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. I believe it's found on page uh, 1015 of your pew Bibles. We'll be looking at uh, five verses, beginning at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. As we approach God's holy word this morning, please join me in a word of prayer. Father God, we know that this is a difficult time in the history of our nation. We know that as Christians, we struggle with what is the best choice and whether we're simply choosing the lesser of two evils. But Father, we do know that you are sovereign over all. 
And we know that no matter who wins the election, you have established this authority. You reign over all. We pray that as we spend the next 30 days in conversations with loved ones and co-workers and colleagues, that you would again help us to begin to live on mission as we prepare for this election. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul's general theme in this letter is really how we are to live and engage in a pagan culture. Early in chapter 2, he he provides the uh, foundational verse for how Christians should have interactions with those who do not share our beliefs. If you look a couple verses up to verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you you may proclaim the excellencies of him who were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, as this chapter continues, Paul identifies specific situations where they will have the opportunity to be God's representatives, God's ambassadors to different situations. And the first that he approaches is how to deal with Roman authorities. Now, we might be tempted to think that if if the Apostle Peter was writing this today, he would maybe have a slightly different position. Maybe he would back off a little bit or soften his uh, emphatic statement about honor the emperor. After all, the leaders in Peter's day must have been encouraging and more honorable and respectful than in our nation's capital today. Do you think that? Peter was dealing with the Emperor Nero. He was best known for his debaucheries, political murders, persecution of Christians. He ordered all manner of creative and brutal persecutions. Some were condemned to be dressed in animal skins and torn apart by dogs, while others were burned to death in the nighttime pyres that provided light for the emperor's garden parties. So Peter knows what it's like to have one in authority that you do not respect, one who does not do what they're called to do. But Peter still is reminding his fellow Christians that even in the context of a leader that is misguided, a leader that is not following God's laws, that we are in turn are to submit. That we are in turn to provide an opportunity for those who do not know Christ to see our example and to be changed by that. So when Peter in verse 13 commands us to be subject to every human institution, which that word can also mean human creation, he's reminding us that it is God who established all authority and has placed those in authority. God has set up government structures to restrain evil and to promote good among the people. Followers of Christ are to submit to the government as a rightful authority established by God. 
when we begin to understand that the selection of leaders, that the direction of the government is not outside of God's control, it should change the way that we respond to situations. It should change the way that we have dialogue with those who have different views. Because when we have this understanding that God is ultimately in control, that He is the one who establishes authorities and He is the one that removes them, it changes us in that sense of peace regarding that situation. Perhaps you've experienced a situation where in your company, uh, perhaps there's somebody that you're reporting to and, and the senior executive or the board of directors kind of tells you, look, we know this candidate, we know this person is not ideal, but do it for me. Obey them for me. Give them the respect, but know that I am watching what's going on and I will ensure that things do not go too far off. Or perhaps you've seen this as a parent. You've pleaded with one of your siblings to be nice to their other sibling. Not because it's necessarily fair, but because you've asked them to do that. And there is this sense of a child wanting to please their parent. There's this sense of the child understanding that the parent has ultimate authority anyways. And so they're much more comfortable making that choice. We see in verse 13 that the reason why we are to submit to governing authorities is for the Lord's sake. And in verse 15 we see it says it is God's will that we do it. For the Lord's sake provides the motivation and the boundaries, if you will, since God is in control of everything. This is not talking about blind submission. This is understanding that God is the ultimate authority and whenever we are in a conflict between a human ruler and God's word, we choose to honor God. But when we begin to see that our actions are not honoring those in charge, then we should be convicted, not because we're not paying proper respect to that authority, but that we're disobeying God's laws. Our submission is both a sign of our obedience to God and grace to others. So what does Peter say happens when we submit and honor those in authority? Look at the second half of the verse 15. It says we silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now you're going to quickly try to apply that to what Donald Trump says. I understand that. But this is going much beyond that. What this is talking about is in the pagan world, Christians are misunderstood. And it's very easy for them to try to label us. It's very easy for us to be put in contrary to what is viewed by the common person. 
But what is being represented here, much like they would have faced in Peter's time, is that we need to make sure that we are extending grace, breathing grace, that we are doing everything we can to provide them reason to see Christ working through us. The early Christians were accused of being cannibals because they had this ceremony where they were eating the bread, eating the body and drinking the blood. There's many ways that Christians are unfairly characterized today. And as we become more and more counter to culture, it'll be easy for us to be labeled as scapegoats. But what Peter is trying to identify here is that by going beyond what is expected, by breathing grace in situations that the rest of the world could not understand, that people will indeed see Christ in us. You know, our desire and often our prayer is that the worldly leaders would acknowledge the sovereign Lord and they would desire to do His will. But I find it hard that we're thinking they should do that when we as Christians do not model that to those who don't know Christ. When we are wringing our hands, when we are joining in the fray of political debate, when we are making jokes about moving to Canada and things like that, there is not that sense that we have a hope that is greater than anything else that they have. We're not focused on who God is and understanding that He's in control. Instead, we are focused on what we simply see as opposed to what we cannot see. Scripture urges us to pray for our kings and to all those who are in high positions, 1 Peter 2, 2. And that even includes leaders that we may disagree with. By doing right, submitting to the governmental authority, the Christian will silence those who would be critical of the faith. It's one more way that we're removing an obstacle as we try to show Christ to those around us. I want to talk briefly about the opportunities we have as Christians in the next 30 days. First thing I would do is I would encourage you to take a deep breath. After November 8th, Either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton will be the president-elect, but God will still be on the throne. And this is not perhaps the most embarrassing or dirtiest campaign yet. If you want to look at a campaign in our history, look at the John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson in 1828. This may look pale in comparison to that. Second thing that we need to do is to understand that God holds 
the future in His hand. When we do that, it is so much easier to live out on mission in a world that appears very dark. Political campaigns often try to prey on people's fears. One candidate will say, you know, if this, my opponent gets elected, this is what he will do to bring down this nation. Or perhaps said on a different way, if you do not elect me, this country will be in trouble. But as Christians, we should not be subject to that approach of fear. Because we have a hope that the Lord is sovereign. We have the knowledge that He is over all things. And that even when there are things in this life that do not please us and we cannot understand, we have the comfort and the knowledge that Jesus Christ is on the throne. So when you approach the election, when you approach these next 30 days, try to model an attitude that is different than what the world views. Try to begin to season your conversations with salt. Try to again show a peace about the situation. Not because you're happy that your candidate is probably going to win, but because you have an understanding that they are under the authority of the Almighty God. Russell Moore talks about how we tend to look at our country in kind of a post-Christian perspective. But he encourages us to see the parallels between what we experience in the early church and instead think of it as pre-Christian. That we have an opportunity here, much like the apostles, much like the early Christians, to shine a light in a world full of darkness. Second thing I would encourage you to do over the next 30 days is to breathe grace. If people infuriate you because they're voting for a candidate that you don't agree with, don't look down on them as being superior to them. But again, take the opportunity to have a dialogue full of grace. In verse 16, it talks about we're to live as people who are free, but not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. There's this paradox that Peter is talking about here. He's talking about that as Christians, we are free because we acknowledge Jesus Christ as our sovereign Lord. We have been freed by both the penalty and the guilt of sin. And so we no longer need to live as slaves. But what Peter says, because of that, because of that, we willingly submit to others around us. Verse 17, the closing verse says, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. That again is not 
putting limitations on who we show grace to. But it's acknowledging that we are owing everyone the grace that we have received and we in turn share the grace with them. There's a debate tonight and this time tomorrow or maybe this time on Tuesday if you have tomorrow as a holiday, you'll have an opportunity to engage with other co-workers or classmates or neighbors. Whenever there is situations like this that polarize the nation, it is a platform by which Christians can again have an opportunity to be countercultural, to be able to show the difference we have because we have confidence that God is sovereign, the peace that we have because we know that God is in control. In verse 13, Peter talks about honoring the emperor as supreme. Now, it was interesting when I was looking at this, it's not in the sense of the ultimate authority. But the verb there that he uses, sorry, the the adjective that he uses, is the same word that Paul uses in Philippians 2.3 when he talks about humbly count others more significantly than yourself. Not looking down at them, but simply breathing grace into our discussions and to those who have authority over us. We've talked about ways that we want to remove obstacles for those who don't know Christ. We don't want to have, again, things that are so foreign to them that they cannot understand what we believe or what we're doing. But the time that it is appropriate to be countercultural is when we're showing the world the grace, the peace, the love in a situation that does not seem to fit. And so as you have an opportunity over the next 30 days, I would encourage you to find ways to begin to reflect that in all your interactions. Bruce Ashford had a perspective on this election, which I want to close with. He says, Christians, our hope is not found in the 2016 election cycle. Our hope is anchored in a future kingdom in which, as the prophet Amos says, justice will roll down like the waters. For that reason, we can engage in political activity with humble confidence. The realm of politics, as dark as it may seem, will one day be resurrected and made to bow in submission to Christ the King. He will renew the earth 
but it will be his victory rather than ours. So even in the darkest moments, we can confidently yet humbly provide and proclaim gospel hope. That is my prayer for us, that as we go through in these 30 days, what we are known for is a perspective of gospel hope. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shame.